there's a, there's a, there's a story, and, and, and I'd like to think it was a story, but it, I, I witnessed it happen hundreds of times when, myself, is when uh, people in the Lake District, tourists, come and ask for directions to somewhere. And the, the, the Lake District boy or the Lake District girl stands there and goes, I wouldn't start here if I was you. <laughs> And some of us can think that way about the town and city we live in. And wherever we go, I hear this, oh, it's hard ground where I live. We can't get much harvest where I live. And, and particularly in Cambridge, we, we, we have this idea, and, and in this area, that it's, it's dominated by intellectualism, atheism, and... It's really hard ground because everybody's really materialistic and, and career orientated or um, status orientated. And, and so we think, I wouldn't start here if I was you. Unfortunately, God called us here. Now, God sees things differently from we do because he sees from a kingdom perspective. And he looks at that same place that we go, I wouldn't start here. And he looks at it and goes, I'd start exactly here because this is a place of influence. And so when Paul went out on his missionary journeys and he wanted to affect a whole region, in fact, affect a whole empire, he went to this place called Ephesus. Well, if you don't know anything about Ephesus, basically, it's the place that Paul wrote to in the book of the Ephesians. And Ephesus was the capital that the Romans used to govern Asia. And it was the commercial center of that area. And it was dominated geographically and culturally by one thing. So you've got a city and it's dominated by one thing. And this thing was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and it's called the Temple of Artemis. Or if, you're, uh, if you were Roman, you called it the Temple of Diana. And it was a, a massive place. How, how many of you have been or seen photographs of the Parthenon in Athens? You know, that thing that stands on top of the hill. Yeah? Well... When the Temple of Artemis stood, because it no longer stands, it was four times the size of the Parthenon. Absolutely huge place, dominated the whole place. And all the, all the, um, the worship and the religion there was led by women who were served by eunuchs, and there was a whole cult uh, of, uh, built up around that. And the whole city was dominated by that. And so it would have been very easy if you'd been pulled to go... I'll pick somewhere else, because that's not the obvious place to go. And I believe that God picked there, not just for that time, but also Scripture tells us that these things are written down as examples to us, so that we should uh, be encouraged and excited because we live in a place that is currently subject to stuff other than the kingdom of God. So we should be encouraged that something happened in Ephesus that looked impossible, that we can expect the same thing to happen here. Are you, are you with me on that? 
So you've got this city and it's, and it's run by organised religion and politically, economic and socially, everything is entwined with that belief system. Now, if you translate that to now, you could, you could translate that to everything is entwined with the, the, the religion of materialism or atheism. Atheism is a religion. Although it denies God, it's, it has a, a religious objective, which is to eliminate all those who don't agree with it. And so it's a religion all the same, and people join up and adhere to it and follow it. And, and so we have that same thing in this area. That, that everything is dependent socially, culturally, geographically, economically, in the area we live, on these, these, these religions that we see dominating this city of intellectualism, materialism, self-focus, self-centeredness, and atheism. And it's in that setting that that's our temple that's huge, that, we, that, that needs the kingdom to be seen and to take over. And that's what happened in Ephesus. So Paul went to Ephesus, and if you want to look at Acts 19, I'm going to give you a quick overview of Acts 19 before we get on to the passage in 1 Timothy. But in Acts 19, uh, Paul goes to Ephesus, he starts uh, to speak there, and he starts in the synagogue. Um, interestingly, you know, and this is just an aside, but th there are some who think that going back to the early days of the church means abandoning church as we see it this morning. That is not correct. That's not what they did in the New Testament, although some people seem to think that they would like that idea. There's nothing wrong with church gathered in meetings. In fact, they gathered in the synagogue and then went out and got about their business, got about their daily work. Now, in actual fact, they were so successful at doing that because they were meeting in a Jewish synagogue in, in this uh, pagan city that... The, the Jews in the local synagogue started to object. So they got thrown out, and they ended up in, in basically a rental property, a bit like us, ending up in a rental property. And that's where this church grew from. So just a quick overview from just a few select verses of Acts 19. God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and evil spirits went out of them. And many who believed came confessing and telling the deeds. Also, many of those who'd practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of everyone, in, in open sight. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of money in those days. So the word of the Lord grew mightily, and prevailed. Now, what's the point of that? Well, the point of this is that, that 12 people, it's a good number 12, isn't it? A lot less than we have this morning. A good number of people, 12 people, started uh, to follow and believe God to do something extraordinary. And in response to that, God did something extraordinary. He did extraordinary miracles. Now, the Bible is full of miracles, so 
when they're used to phrase extraordinary miracles, they're either huge numbers of them or they're so outstanding that you can't deny what is happening right in front of you. So God uses, in response to these believers, he produces extraordinary miracles in the lives of those they are praying for. And the result of that, which isn't in those verses, but is in verse 10, is that we are told that all of Asia heard the word. So that's not just the city of Ephesus, that's the whole of Asia. So when we look at Cambridge, what we're saying is, if, is what we're looking for God to do is impact our region so that the whole of the UK hears. Now, there is history of Cambridge being impacted in such a way that the whole of the UK is affected. The Reformation in the UK started in Cambridge, in that little church hidden behind everywhere, where, where, where the, pul the, the original pulpit, the first Lutheran sermon was preached in the UK. The, the missionary movement in the UK started in Cambridge. The charismatic renewal in the 1960s, start, unbelievably now, you look at it and you go, it started in the round church. You can't get more traditional than the round church now, can you? But that's where the charismatic renewal started in the UK. Because Cambridge is influential on people's thinking, and it's the same with Ephesus. So if, if we, when we believe God to do something extraordinary through us, it will have a bigger impact than just those we encounter. Are, are you with me? Okay. And what happened as a result of this, and, and you could see from, from those verses that I read, is that all the occult opposition, that, that dominant culture of the occult that, that dominated this city, fell apart. Because people started turning to God in response to the miracles that they saw. And they, they ended up burning all their magic books. It'd be kind of cool if the university library was burnt down by those in it, wouldn't it? <laughs> Sorry, that's a naughty thought. <laughs> you see, our vision of what God can do is much too small. And we've limited God to somebody who's there just to meet our needs of the moment and to bless whatever our plan is. And he's calling his people to actually influence a culture and to change neighborhoods and to change regions. And that, that, that's, a, that's a big shift for us in our thinking because as, as Christians, we've got so entrenched in this, it's all about me and how I feel and feeling good. And, and, and in doing that, it's not that God doesn't want to bless us individually. It's just our, our idea of what God wants to do is way, way too small. And, and so we settle for little miracles instead of extraordinary miracles. And, and what we find that is that by the end of this passage in Acts chapter 19, it hit, uh, this move of God that, that had started with this, this tiny little church affected the whole economy because 
the, the silversmiths who've been making stuff for, for all the religious practices and stuff, their businesses collapsed and they went and complained because <laughs> they couldn't sell anything. And the whole economy of the city was based on this silver trade. So the whole, whole economy was affected. Now the conclusion of all that, when you, you, you look at that story, is this, is that a small struggling church reached an entire influential city for Christ. And I believe God's challenging us again to start putting our vision that he can do that again where we are. Not, not just in Cambridge, but everywhere. But I'm on, I only get to talk to you. And, and I believe he's challenging us to do that. Now the question is, how did that happen? How, how did it do it? Because just starting that phrase, extraordinary miracles, it, it's, it's a step into the process. So how, how does this happen in, in terms of that blueprint that we looked at over the summer for, for reaching people? And how did it happen there? What I want you to see is this. If, if you'd gone to this, this city of Ephesus and you'd seen all this occult religion with all based around sex and debauchery and all sorts of horrible practices. And, and that was the prevailing culture and the way that the whole city was governed. What would our reaction have been as Christians today? Yeah, we'd have gone yuck. But then what would we have done about it? And I, I was thinking about this and I was thinking, well, I wouldn't have done what Paul actually did. Because we are programmed to do things in certain ways. And, and I, I can almost guarantee what, you would have, what we would have done is we'd have started some petitions, we'd have built a pressure group, we'd have told everybody what they were doing wrong, we'd have campaigned against everything, and Facebook would have just been covered with verses of scripture and things attacking what was going on. And, 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 and calling people... To, to denounce it as Christians, because this is affecting our, our godly culture. Because isn't that how we deal with everything we don't agree with in, in our nation? Isn't that what the church nationally does? But I can't find any trace of Paul or Jesus ever doing that sort of thing. And I find that really fascinating. And I think it's, it's one of the reasons why we do a lot of activity with very little fruit and very little change to the culture. Because the culture is then able to put us in a box that says you're an extremist. And so we're there alongside all the other extremists who are on the news. And so it's easy for them, for people to ignore God because he's in the extremist box along with all the other gods. So we bear little fruit. And quite frankly, we've had no effect on law or government. In fact, it's got worse because of some of the cases that have been taken. We've actually got more confined. So what did they do if they didn't do that? Well, when you look at the story, 
first thing that's really apparent is that they're committed to the area. They didn't just come in and run a, like a gospel campaign, big crusade, let's get, let's get the stage up, lads, let's get the lights, let's get the music, let's get the, 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 the headline speaker, let's bring him over from America, first class, and all that sort of stuff. They didn't do that. What they did is they moved in and they stayed there for two years before they did anything. Only they weren't not doing anything. What they were doing is that they were building relationships with people deliberately and praying for people. And as they got to know people and as they uh, built genuine relationship with people, they became aware of the needs in those people's lives and the needs in the city. And they began to pray for those needs and God did extraordinary miracles. That's God's bit. Do, do you see it? That it's a very different way than we approach expecting our culture to change. Now, what, what that gets me excited is this. Anybody can do that. Not everybody can be part of a pressure group or be eloquent enough to whap stuff on Facebook or write newspaper articles, but every single one of us can build a relationship, genuinely care about somebody, genuinely love somebody, and when we become aware of their needs, we can pray for them. There is nobody in this room that cannot do that, and that is not scary even. And that's the beauty of God's strategy. It's a strategy that anybody can do. What's the problem? Failure to implement. Because we do, we implement lots of energy and lots of things and lots of activities, but we don't implement God's strategy. As individuals or corporately. Now, why extraordinary miracles? Well, extraordinary miracles is because of the needs of this city. Because it's an extraordinarily dominated by Satan city. What's God telling us through that? He's telling us that no matter how much the power of the enemy and how entrenched he is in the culture or in the lives of people, the kingdom of God is superior to the defeated kingdom of the enemy. And the superior reality of the kingdom can come to pass above, over and above, the defeated reality of the enemy's kingdom. And that, 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 that in living for the kingdom, we are given a purpose and the ability to see out that purpose. And that's, that's what we're about. We're about bringing heaven to earth where we live and in the, in, in the towns in which we live. Are you with me? Okay. You're all very quiet this morning. Perhaps, it, perhaps it's me. Perhaps I'm not hearing you right. <laughs> You're very quiet. Right. Yes. So, well, go, way to go, Dale. Right. Okay, so this is the paradigm shift I want, I want you to make. So this is, this is the shift for this morning. And it's a really simple one. It's to do with evangelism. And it's this. That if we are going to fulfill the Great Commission... Discipling, discipling the nations, baptizing the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all the rest of it. If we're going to fulfill that commission, we have to restore a missing component to its central place. In order to fulfill the Great Commission, we have to become a church of prayer. 
okay? That doesn't get you excited. It should get you excited, but the reason it doesn't get you excited is because we have got so used all of our Christian lives to doing lots of other stuff and prayer being demoted to something that about five people did on a Wednesday night. Okay? Prayer is the power of God. Prayer is what brings heaven to earth. And what we find is that Ephesus and every other move of God that we see in Scripture is as a result, not just of speaking the word, but primarily as a result of the miraculous interventions that God did on the basis of prayer into the lives of real people. And so if we're going to see a move of God, it's not going to be determined by ten people, five people, sat in a room crying out to God to send revival in the hope that a hundred people are going to turn up here next Sunday morning unannounced. It's going to be as a result of us having real relationships with real people and real lives and real messes and asking them, can I pray for you and expecting God to do a miracle in their lives. It's not a revival is not going to is not a result of somebody standing on a street corner or hiring a room and preaching people and telling them how bad they are. Revival is as a result of people seeing the kingdom of God and saying, I want a part of that. Jesus introduced people to the kingdom of God before he introduced them to himself. And and, and the paradigm shift that gets us to prayer is this. Jesus was not afraid, in fact, actively promoted, and it's the method that Paul and the other disciples employed is this. I will let you see the kingdom of God before you believe in it. And we've got this idea that we need to preach the kingdom of God and then people will believe and then we can train them to start to see it by doing some prayer ministry. And Jesus comes at the other way around. You see, we can get hung up on one, one or two verses, but Jesus is basically adopting a strategy. He says... I'm not bothered if you need to see it to believe it. I'll show you. I'll show you. I'll show you what it looks like. And in that, prayer and speaking go hand in hand. Prayer and evangelism go hand in hand. There is no revival coming to this city without prayer, corporate and individual prayer. Because it's the lead on the strategy before you get to the preaching of the word. Okay, I need to show you that, don't I? Go to 1 Timothy. Why 1 Timothy? Well, when Paul moves on from Ephesus, he leaves this church that he's established in Ephesus in the hands of a teenager. Okay, let's have a look around the room. Any teenagers in the room? (laughs) Any people who lie a lot in the room? You know, as your pastor, that is sinful You are very, very naughty people. (laughs) Pulling the grace card on here. Okay, let's have a look. Before we go there, let's have a look at, you don't have to turn to it, but Acts chapter 2. Because I believe this is one of the most misunderstood passages that there is. In fact, I've misunderstood it for years because I reduce it to religion. And I reduce it to the practices we use as religious practices in the church. How many of you would agree that after Pentecost, 
A major move of God took place in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, until all of Jerusalem had heard it, and they actually, actually kicked out all the believers. Yeah? Why did it happen? Because actually, we're not really told. We're told about one miracle, the guy that gets his ankles healed, and that creates quite a stir, but we're not really told. What we are told is what they were doing. This is what they were doing, Acts chapter 2. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine or teaching and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayer. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, we read that and it comes out all religious in our head. And it seems like, well, that's not a very exciting prospect, is it? But it sounds very holy. Because we, we need to have more prayer meetings. Do communion more. Have more meetings and nice fellowship. And we need to listen to Mark when he's talking. That's the hard one, yeah, okay. Right, so we, we, we think that. Now, that's because we've taken all the power out of the practice. Okay, what are they doing? They are listening to the apostles teaching who are explaining to them about Jesus, what's happened, how they can walk on it, who they are in Christ, what they can expect, how they can be carriers of the kingdom, and how heaven comes to earth. That's the apostles' teaching. That's exciting, isn't it? So they're learning. They're doing what you're doing this morning. And then what do they do? They fellowship. They have real relationship with real people. It's not a little religious huddle, which we call fellowship. Let's have a fellowship time. Let's sing some really naff choruses from the 1960s with the guitar that's out of tune. Fellowship time. Let's have some soggy rich tea biscuits. Fellowship time. No. It's saying that this, this is an outward focused description and we have made it an inward focused religious explanation. And so fellowship is that they, they engaged in relationship together and with everybody around them. And then what did they do? They broke bread. That's not communion, guys. It's eating together. It's sharing meals together. It's hospitality. It's not bread and wine. It's breaking bread. It's the eating together and sharing hospitality. Can you see how we made it really rubbish and small? And then what did they do? They led with the most powerful weapon of all, which is prayer. They prayed for what they saw around them and for each other and expected miracles. How do I know that? Well, by the time we get to Ephesus, Paul gives Timothy some instructions about what to do in the church in Ephesus. Chapter 1, verse... Uh, yeah, chapter, sorry, 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. Here we go. I exhort, first of all, that entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving are made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is no, one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. Now, 
let me explain this to you. Because, you know, we, we have this thing that basically scripture was written on scrolls and it was laborious to reproduce. So words are very condensed. So you have to read every word and read it carefully. The bulk of this letter that he writes to Timothy is about church structure. It's about how you appoint uh, people to positions in the church, how, how the whole organisation works, how husbands and wives relate in, 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 in that city of Ephesus. But what I want you to see, first of all, is that in that passage, prayer and evangelism are so intertwined, it's really difficult to separate out. Because at one minute he's talking about praying, and then he switches to talking about salvations and all men coming to Christ, and Christ having paid the ransom for all, and then he switches back to prayer. And I go, well, that's a really odd thing to do, isn't it? This isn't making no sense to me at all. Unless the two are one and the same, that you cannot separate prayer from evangelism. And that what he's actually doing is explaining how you see and maintain change in the culture around you. Let me go, let me take this a bit further. You, it's a paradigm shift, it's going to hurt your brain, okay? Say, so this is going to hurt my brain, but I'm loving it. Good, okay. This isn't an outline of a church meeting, or, or even a strategy for how to grow a church. Let me go to the end of that passage, verse 8. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. Sometimes it can get a bit lost in translation or a bit lost because we read it slightly differently. But what he's saying there is, I want men to pray in every place. I want people... This is, this is core to what we're doing. I want people in your body, Timothy, praying everywhere and wherever they are at whatever time they can do it. That, that's my strategy, Timothy, for how we're going to sustain this revival that we started in Ephesus together. Men praying everywhere, in every place, all across the city, in every area, praying. Now, what are they praying? Because that's kind of important, isn't it? You know, like... like you know, it's quite nice. God bless Auntie Annie. God bless my kids, children. Can I have a peaceful night's sleep? If I should die and not wake, I pray the Lord myself. And all that sort of stuff. No, that's not what they're praying. What are they praying? Well, we know what they're praying. Going back a few verses before this started, Paul said to Timothy, and it's his, it's his big opener to the whole letter, he says this, This I command you and entrust to you. What would he command Timothy and entrust to Timothy if Timothy is going to continue leading this church in this absolutely influential city in the region? It gets a bit lost because he then goes, <laughs> Paul goes off on one for a few verses and starts saying, this is all based on grace and there's this guy called Hymenaeus and he's been a bad lad and he needs sorting out and... Anyway, don't follow him because he shipwrecked his faith. And then he says, first of all, this is what I want you to do. Okay, so he says, don't be like that guy. 
because he's made a mess of it. But this is what I want you to do. So this is what I'm commanding. Of all I'm commanding, what is the first thing I want to do? What's first in order of priority? First of all, the first assignment for everyone in, this, in our church and in this city who are believers is this. To make sure everyone that we know is prayed for. That's our first assignment. Why? Because prayer brings heaven to earth. We are carriers of the kingdom. We are the gatekeepers of the kingdom. So prayer brings heaven to earth. And so, and, and what are we praying for? First of all, the entreaties, prayers, petitions, thanksgiving are made on behalf of all men. Now I want you to see a couple of things there. You're praying on behalf of somebody who doesn't know how to get the answer themselves and sometimes doesn't even know they need the answer. It's on behalf of somebody else. That's really interesting, is it? Because sometimes we, we pray for ourselves and our own church, and he's saying, pray on behalf of others. And, and in doing that, what we're doing, that, 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 the tense of that is a continuous repeating of it. Just keep on doing it, guys. Praying for others who aren't able to pray for themselves or don't know what to pray for themselves. And then he says this, he says, on behalf of, whose good is it for? It's for their good. We are praying for the good of others who don't even know Christ yet. We're praying for their blessing, favour on their lives. For, for peace to rest on their lives, for for good things to come into their lives, for the problems that they can't solve to be answered. Now, we, we can all do that, can't we? And that, that's, a, that's a lot better and a lot easier than inviting somebody over and then whapping them by telling them how bad they are. It's not that they don't need to change. We know they need to change. Christ died so they could change. But that's not how we get to the to point where change occurs. And, and our goal is to get people to the point where change occurs in their life and not become a barrier to that change happening. And Jesus came to save, not to judge. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. So, so if we can get people to see that the kingdom is real and God is real, the Holy Spirit can then do his job and bring about change. Rather than us trying to tell people how bad they are and they've got a problem they need to sort out because they're going to burn. That's not good news. Burning's not good news. No. Okay, so. Who are we praying for? Well, we're praying for people everywhere, but we're also praying for a specific group of people. We're going to pray for kings and all who are in authority. What does that mean? It means what it says. People who are prominent and people who have influence. People who are your bosses. People who own the companies you work for. People who manage the hospital. People who run the council. People who run your neighbourhood. People who run the school. People who run the university. People of influence. And this is in a first of all, this is what I'm telling you to do in order to affect a city and a neighbourhood. Why would you do that? Because these are the people who shape the culture of the city. 
No change in them, no change in culture of the city. And remember, we're about taking cities, not counting a few salvations. We want to change the culture as well. We want to bring the kingdom to where we live. You see, people who are in positions of influence influence the life of an area. They influence your life. How many of you know your boss influences your life? How many of you have had very real examples of that in the last few weeks? Your boss influencing your life. Yeah, they do. What else, do, what else happens? You see, the thing is, people of influence know something that they don't tell you. In case you catch on that they haven't got the answer to everything. And people of influence do this. They, they know inside themselves that their influence is limited. And that there are problems that they don't have the answers to. And they can't fix. And more often than not, in our culture today, they're hiding that. Because they don't want to lose face. But nevertheless, they, ev everyone in, in positions of influence has problems they can't fix. That's why governments on their election manifestos make promises that they can't keep because they can't find a way of keeping them. And why, why else do we pray for them? Well, so I'm going to go all spiritual on you. We also pray for them because if the God of this world has blinded the minds, they're also the centre of demonic influence on our culture. And only by changing will that demonic influence be removed and will the kingdom come. So we're not just dealing with natural things, we're dealing with spiritual things as well. You see, the world, according to scripture, is set off in a position of a city sets off in a position of being under the influence of the evil one, of his structures. And those structures, according to scripture, are bolted onto political and governmental structures. So if we're going to change things, the people who are in positions of influence need to start getting reached by the kingdom. So who's in influence? What, what, like when we move to, to the new venue, who should we be talking to? Well, where do people go in the new area we're going to? I'll tell you the first things I'm going to, we, we plan on do it. In fact, we, we've already started the process. I'm going to talk to the headmaster of the school we're moving to and say, what does he need? In fact, we went this week and we found out several things that they need. In fact, one of the things they need is us. So how cool is that? Um, where do most people go in that quarter of the city on a Sunday? Waitrose. Who's the person of influence? The manager of Waitrose, because he can decide whether we can do any activities outside his front door or not. Yeah? So we, we pray for these people, and, and we find somewhere finding out what they need, and then expect God to do a miracle. That's how this works. We, we're kind of cool at expecting God to do miracles in our meetings, but we need to expect him to do miracles in our everyday lives as well. Let me just start to wrap this up now. What, what happens as a result of this? It, it says that 
when we pray for these people, we end up in a position of leading a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Again, we water down what that is saying. Because it's just a nice thing, isn't it? We all want to live in peace. We all just want to get on with our lives in peace, doing what we want to do. And if, and if only there wasn't all these other people, life would be great. Yeah? It wouldn't. Because this isn't about just us living a nice, quiet life. This is about the kingdom changing people and changing cities. The only way this city ever gets to be in that category of quiet, peaceful life in godliness and honesty is if people start getting saved in positions of influence and wholesale across the city. The only way this city becomes a godly city is for the people in this city to change and come into the kingdom. The only way this city ends up being run by the government of the kingdom instead of the government of the enemy is this to become the city of our God. That's why I, often I will say, Cambridge, I name you the city of our God. I'm prophesying it. I'm speaking it out. Because it's not at the moment. But it will be. So what's lacking in what we're doing? So my question is this. Do, do we need more events, more courses, more programs and better lights? The one thing that's lacking, it's not that anything is wrong with any of those things, but we've got all those things and we're not impacting because the one thing we need at the core of it that makes the mix hang together He's praying for men everywhere. And that's why, you know, I sent out this thing. If you're on the church email list, you will have got an email from me this week talking about how we follow on what I've been talking about this summer of, on adopting a street. How many of you got that email? How many of you don't read your emails? We know who doesn't read their emails because we have MailChimp and it tells us how many people read their emails. And so less than 50% of you actually read your emails that we send out. So only about 50% of you actually know what Adopter Street is at the moment. That's just to encourage you to read your emails that sometimes Mark can say something useful. Not often, I grant you, but sometimes it's in there. And so the idea behind this is that each one of us will adopt a street that we pray for every day, and we walk down regularly and we start to build relationships. Now, that can be the street you live on. Okay, that's not, not a big thing, is it? For you to walk down your street and pray for the people in that street and maybe have a chat to some of them. And so we want each person to adopt a street and pray for it regularly. That's what we can do as individuals. Corporately, we're going to focus on an area and, and go for that area first. But as individuals, we want to affect our neighbourhoods in Haverhill, Ely, Littleport, wherever else, by adopting streets and paying for them. Yeah, Papworth. Heathen place. <laughs> okay. So how do you pray? How, how, do, how do you do this prayer? Well, we're going to have to do a little bit of work 
in order to be effective in this pair. Because it's not just paying for a list of names. I remember a few years ago, we used to, there used to be pastors' prayer meetings and pastors' lunches, and I used to go to them for a while. Um, but they, I, I stopped eventually, because basically what we do is we get the pictures of the councillors out, the county councillors, and we pay for each of those councillors by name. Now, the problem is we had no clue what any of those councillors were. None of us knew any of the councillors. We didn't know they were real people. I mean, there were pictures. Some of them looked scary. And, and we had no idea what we were paying for. And we would have no idea if it was ever answered because we didn't know the people. So if we're going to pray, we need to start to get to know people. Now, basically, what we, we are about is building relationship with people so we can find out what they need and pray for it and then expect a miracle. And if we'll do that, God will take this city and he'll take all this region. And we have to start believing that. That's the paradigm shift. We have to start believing that. I'm not sure I can. We have to start getting to know people to find out what they need in order to pray for them, to expect a miracle, and God will do the miracle and that will change the person, the city, the region. That's the nearest I can get to repeating it. You see, we go, well, how do I do that? Well, more people are actually open to prayer than you expect. They're not really open to us doing our potted version of what we thought the gospel was. <laughs> they, they go, oh, I'm not interested. I'm just getting my coffee. And, but they are interested, if you're really interested in them and genuinely care for them, in letting you pray for them. And do you know what the funny thing is? They don't expect an answer. And that's why it's so powerful when they get answers. But actually, they're not thrown when they don't get an answer. Because it's a bit like, and I'm going like, oh, why is that? Why? Because we get like, oh, like, oh, I haven't seen anything happen within 30 seconds. I've failed. They're not doing that. You see, if you've got a problem, I mean, I know this will stretch credibility a little bit, okay? But let's say, let's say that I said to all of you that I am a personal friend of Theresa May, okay? And you've got all sorts of problems. Uh, in court, and in your businesses, and in government, and with taxes, and all that sort of stuff. And I said, I can go to Theresa May and speak on your behalf. Would you say yes or no? Now, would you always expect you were going to get the answer you wanted? No, you wouldn't. You'd be grateful to me because I'd gone to the person in authority on your behalf, but you're not necessarily expecting anything. And that's why when we pray for people, we feel a lot more pressure than they do. They only spot that, we be, that it actually happened when the miracle happens or when things turn around. That's why it's powerful. And we, we put ourselves up, what if God doesn't answer? They're not bothering about that. They're, they're really grateful that you would go to somebody who might have an answer for them because they haven't got one. Are you with me? 
So what am I saying about all of this? The shift that we need to make is this, that the best way to pay for the unsaved is to get to know them and maintain contact with them two years in Ephesus before anything happened in order to pay for their needs and expect a miracle. That's God's big strategy for changing the world. It's light years away from what we've been doing. Let's stand.